Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You're about to listen to a historical episode of Dark Poutine. After episode 149, you will find Scott is no longer with the show. In an effort to maintain continuity and offer listeners as many episodes as possible, we are leaving the episodes in which he co-hosted intact. Thank you. Oh, look at that. The thing is happening. Uh, apparently, we are back from our break, and people were concerned that the show was over, but it's not. No, Mike, it was just time for a little uh, nappy poo. Welcome to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, creator and host with me as usual is my good friend and co-host, Scott Hemingway. Say hello, Scott. What's popping and locking, y'all? Oh, popping and locking. Yeah, I used to yeah. like that. Breaking 2, oh, really God. bad movie. I, I love breakdancing, a little popping and locking. Mm. I cannot do it at all. I'm terrible. Yeah, I mean, at one point I could do the worm. Yeah, um, I think now probably dislocated vertebrae will happen. Yeah, I can do the dead worm. This like I just lay down. <laughs> so you can lay down. Yeah, you can. You can rest. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate Global News, nor their parent company Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Listener discretion is strongly advised. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're two ordinary Canadians chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some Dark Poutine. Jump, jump, jump. Listeners who feel they're in crisis can contact the Crisis Text Line in Canada by texting HOME to 686868 in the U.S. or U.K. 741741. You'll be matched with a volunteer counsellor who is supervised by a licensed, trained mental health professional. Crisis Text Line is free 24-7 support for those in crisis. For more information, please go to crisistextline.ca in Canada or crisistextline.org globally. And let's get on with this show. This topic has been on my mind for some time. Many Canadians, including myself, were poorly educated about black history, in particular slavery, in Canada and other related shameful historical events that took place even after slavery was abolished. Yeah, cons consider me uninformed on it as well. 
If you've listened to this show for a while, you're sure to know that I was born and grew up in Nova Scotia. In all the years of schooling in my home province, I do not recall a single page of any history textbook or any social studies lecture mentioning the story of the place that we're going to talk about in this show. Nor do I. Granted, I also don't remember yesterday. Fair enough. Around 1850, a community of former black slaves sprung up on the outskirts of Halifax. Hmm. This is episode 132, A Brief History, Slavery in Canada. And Africville. Africville? Mm-hmm. That, has a, that does sound familiar. I think I've heard of it. From the africville.ca website, founded in the mid-1800s, quote, Africville was your typical seaside village, populated by one of Nova Scotia's founding peoples. First came the Aboriginal settlements, later the French and British. Less widely highlighted in our history is a population that was integral to the creation of what Nova Scotia is today, the people of African descent former slaves, escaped slaves, and free people who came to Canada for the promise of a better life. Mm -hmm. Eventually, some of these former slaves settled on the northern tip of the Halifax Peninsula. There, they created a vibrant community by the shores of the Bedford Basin. Before we get deeply into this, as someone who grew up in BC, are you aware of Africville at all? Yeah, uh, in the sense that I know I've heard the name. Yeah. I, I know I've probably seen it on the news or something at some point, but... Just a really brief... The yeah. most brief, the most cursory understanding mm-hmm. or even knowledge of it. So, uh, yeah, the details of it, even in the smallest... Uh, yeah. Elm, I have no idea. I recall being taught of the role Canada played in the Underground Railroad in my schooling. The stories were always told proudly, mm-hmm. painting Canada as a haven for as many as 30,000 slaves on the run from the American South, which is one heritage minute about the Underground Railroad stands out to me now as racist. Heritage minutes. Yeah. There's a link to the video in the show notes. Have a look and see what you think. The conversation about that problematic video is far too long and involved for this episode. Oh, man, now I'm so curious. And I'm sure if it's a Heritage Minute, I'm sure I've seen it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you have. Yeah. They were kind of like Canadian history uh, minute-long commercials. Yeah. So if you're watching... by the Canadian government. There was, however, a massive gap in the teaching about slavery. There was barely another mention of the history of black people in Canada other than that bit of what could be called virtue signaling. Mm -hmm. Not once during my formal schooling do I recall being taught that there was slavery in colonial Canada for over 200 years. Yeah, and it's crazy to me that I've never thought about it. If we're not taught about it, we won't think about it. You know, like if if it's not brought up... But I would, I you would, don't question it. I would think in my 46 years of life, especially being somebody very active yeah. uh, socially uh, for social justice and stuff, I, I would have thought that at some point I would have asked myself, I wonder what role slavery played in Canada's history. Right. So it just now that I'm, it's in my head, it's like, how have I not ever asked that? We do, it doesn't get spoken about. Yeah, yeah. I just grew up assuming that our country has always been a bastion of freedom for all people and that our history in regard to slavery was spotless, but it wasn't. Well, I mean, I've grown up knowing about the Japanese internment camps, uh, how we treated uh, uh, the indigenous population, how we've treated uh, Mm -hmm. the Kamagata Maru, like all kinds like, you know, but 
Yeah, why I never asked what was our role in slavery. So it wasn't taught as a part of the curriculum here. No. And are you aware whether or not this portion of history is being taught to your kids? Have they ever brought it up? I'm going to say it hasn't. Uh, it's never come up. Hmm. It's never come up. Uh, granted, there's still an L, you know, well, Violet's going to high school. But no, we talk about social issues constantly. But no, they've never mentioned anything about slavery in uh, Canadian history. So although the focus of this episode is on Africville and black history in Canada, an article written by Richard Sanders references historian Marcel Trudel's book, Canada's Forgotten Slaves, 200 Years of Bondage. It adds that, quote, slavery existed legally in Canada from 1632 until its abolition in 1834. One of the significant but little-known facts about slaves in New France is that most were indigenous. Of the mm. 4,124 documented slaves whose race was recorded, 35% were black, while 64%, including 339 children, were indigenous. So this was while France was in control of Canada, and they called it New France at the time. Mm -hmm. Some of the folks who feel the need to whitewash history, uncomfortable with the truth for a number of reasons, will point to the fact that when the British Empire abolished slavery in all their colonies in late 1830s, Canada was not technically a country. Canadian Confederation was declared three decades later on July 1st, 1867. So technically, yeah. there has never been slavery in Canada as a country. However, colonial Canada is a different story. Yeah. Save for that one-third of a century during the initial colonization of our country, after the abolition of slavery, Europeans used enslaved Africans and indigenous people as an inexpensive source of labor to help build the country that we now call home. So they were integral to the building of yeah, our country. Yeah, so if you want to create that distinction that it wasn't Canada at the time. Well, they helped build the Canada we're living in. Um, without a doubt, it's part of Canadian history, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah, Canada wouldn't exist without it. Yeah. Interestingly, according to a Black History in Canada teaching guide from the Historica Dominion Institute, the first black person thought to have set foot on Canadian soil was not a slave. His name was Matthew da Costa. He was a free man who was hired as a translator for Samuel de Champlain's 1605 excursion. Hmm. From the Canadian Encyclopedia, quote, The Port Royal National Historic Site in Annapolis, Royal Nova Scotia, celebrates Matthew de Costa's role as an interpreter between Indigenous peoples and the French explorers. A plaque honoring him has been placed on the Matthew de Costa African Heritage Trail, a series of monuments erected and unveiled in 2005 to highlight the history of black Nova Scotians in the Annapolis Valley, end quote. Hmm. So there are things out there that tell about it, but you wouldn't know about it unless you lived nearby or you just wouldn't hear about these things. There was a stamp in 2017 with Matthew de Costa's image on it, but... How often are you going to get stamps nowadays? Oh, good God, I haven't in decades. I find it interesting, though, how there are celebrations mm -hmm. of black history yep. in, in Canada, mm -hmm. uh, but yet, so it's like, yeah, let's talk up and celebrate the positive, this good, uh, the guy who came here uh, as a free man. Yep. But then that whole other component where people were not brought here voluntarily yeah. is yeah. 
not not at all. No. Not mentioned. No, that makes us uncomfortable. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. The first shipload of enslaved Africans to reach British North America landed in Jamestown, Virginia in 1619 from understandingslavery.com. The transatlantic slave trade was responsible for the forced migration of between 12 and 15 million people from Africa to the Western Hemisphere from the middle of the 15th century to the end of the 19th century. Holy shit. The trafficking of Africans by the major European countries during this period is sometimes referred to by African scholars as the Mafa, which is, in Swahili, great disaster. It is now considered a crime against humanity. And here's an aside. The European countries involved were Portugal, Spain, Italy, England, France, and the Netherlands. By the end of the 1700s, the Brits were the biggest players in the slave trade and were responsible for the forced transportation of at least two to three million Africans in that century alone. Good God. The slave trade not only led to the violent transportation overseas of millions of Africans, but also the deaths of many millions more. Yeah, yeah. Nobody knows the total uh, number of people who died during the slave raiding wars in Africa, during the transportation and imprisonment, or in the horrendous conditions during the so-called Middle Passage, the voyage from Africa to the Americas. The kidnapping of Africans occurred mainly in the region that now stretches from Senegal to Angola. However, in the 19th century, some enslaved Africans were also transported across the Atlantic from parts of eastern and southeastern Africa. I'm just blown away by the fact that at any point in history, Mm. it was deemed okay to steal humans and force them to work for you. You know, and that we've talked about it before, how that, you know, different times and this. But how was there a time? It was a conscience, not an actual thing back then. I can't can't imagine how anybody at any point in history could be like, I'm taking you away from your family. Mm -hmm. I'm stealing you. Sometimes they would steal an entire family. Yeah, I'm stealing you. And you're going to work for me for free. like Somewhere else. Like, how, how was like anybody How was anybody at any point in time able to just be like, well, yes, that, this is cool. I'm doing the right thing here. I'm going to go to sleep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Did we not have a conscience back then? Did you, Was that not a part of human <laughs> uh, emotion, regulation? Ugh. When I had my 23andMe done, yep. I had that 1.1% that came from that exact part of Africa that I talked about first, yep. which is interesting. And because I have some Dutch ancestry, this also would make a lot of sense. Oh, wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's on my mother's side because she had her 23andMe done too. Yeah. It determines that we had a full black ancestor at some point within 200 to 300 years ago. So it's right in that period of time when all this was happening. Now, I'm I'm not saying that, you know, I am a persecuted person because I am a very white Anglo-Saxon Protestant male. I am not. <laughs> I'm not a black person, <laughs> even though I have a drop of black blood in me. And really, it is just a drop. 
But it was interesting to when I was doing my research to read, oh, well, mm-hmm. that part of Africa, that little portion of my blood comes from is where this happened. So yeah. I would love to know the story of that person, but finding that out is probably impossible. Yeah, my point, God, but, yeah. Uh, because records weren't really kept that well. You don't know, you know, they were just a group of people who were stolen from a certain point of land. Yeah. And then called something else when they were brought. Yeah, I don't want to get into yeah. that because it's it, this is a way off topic. Yeah. The Canadian Encyclopedia writes that on March 1st, 1685, Louis XIV signed his infamous Code Noir into law. The code allowed for French ownership and usage of slaves for economic purposes. This edict established strict guidelines for the ownership and treatment of slaves. The code outlined sanctioned punishments, and here's a small list of them that reads like a horror movie. Fugitive slaves, absent for a month, should have their ears cut off and be branded. For another month, their hamstring would be cut and they would be branded again. A third time, they would be executed. Free blacks who harbored fugitives would be beaten by the slave owner and fined 300 pounds of sugar per day of refuge given. Other free people who harbored fugitive slaves would be fined. A master who falsely accused a slave of a crime and had the slave put to death would be fined. Oh, (laughs) Masters may chain and beat slaves, but not torture or mutilate them. So I don't know what branding or cutting off their ears would be. Or or beating. Is that not torture? (laughs) What the hell? Masters who killed their slaves would be punished, but it doesn't outline the punishment. Holy fuck. Slaves were community property and could not be mortgaged and must be equally split between the master's inheritors, but could be used as payment in case of debt or bankruptcy and otherwise sold. So people got together, yeah, brainstormed. And then the king signed off on it. This was what was, okay, no, I think this is acceptable. Right. And it makes me wonder now, mm-hmm. what are we doing today? That in a hundred years from now, 200 years from now, people are going to be going, oh, what the fuck? How could they do that? Um, not providing safe drinking water to indigenous people in the mm-hmm. north. That's one thing. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. happening today. Yeah, yeah this good. very day. Very good example. Yeah. yeah. Store that they have up north, the amount of money that they pay for an apple is outrageous. But it, it's, a, it's an interesting question because it does make you start to think about, okay. There are lots of things. Yeah. Four years after the Code Noir was signed into law, the French colonists complained to Louis XIV that there were not enough settlers to complete all the work building up the new communities they were involved in. So the king gave his blessing for the colonists of New France to utilize Pawnee Indian and African slaves in a less limited way. The king finally caved into pressure in 1709 and the floodgates were opened to make use of slaves in New France for whatever you needed them for. Holy fuck. When the British conquered New France in 1760, the enslaved blacks and indigenous people were turned over as property to the invaders and remained slaves. So it wasn't like, okay. Here's freedom. Yeah, no, just new masters who speak a different language. Oh my God. From NovaScotia.ca, most black people brought to Nova Scotia between 1749 and 1782, were slaves of English or American settlers. In 1750, a Royal Navy officer, Thomas Bloss, brought 16 slaves to Halifax, perhaps in order to crew vessels involved in maritime commerce. 
prominent ship power and trader Joshua Mauger sold slaves at auction in Halifax, and newspaper advertisements for the return of runaway slaves were common. Included in the nearly 3,000 inhabitants of Halifax in 1750, there were about 400 enslaved and 17 free black people. So that's a big portion of the population is enslaved. Mm-hmm. In 1759, the governor of Nova Scotia, Charles Lawrence, offered New Englanders large tracts of free land if they would move to Nova Scotia. This resulted in some 6,000 settlers, called planters, relocating to Nova Scotia between 1759 and 1765. They settled in the Annapolis Valley and elsewhere formed townships such as Cornwallis, Falmouth, and Liverpool. The town I grew up in is very close to Mm -hmm. Liverpool. The planters brought their slaves, numbering in the hundreds with them. A few free black people, such as Barbary Barbara Cuffey of Liverpool, also came as planters. In 1767, there were 104 free black persons living in Nova Scotia, which included present-day New Brunswick and Prince Edward Island. This was less than 1% of the total population, end quote. So the free black people was less than 1%. Mm, Okay, okay. But the enslaved were quite higher, yeah, quite a bit higher. According to NovaScotia.ca, a turning point came during the Revolutionary War that took place between the United States and the British. Quote, when Lord Dunmore, royal governor of Virginia, lost control of that colony to the rebels in the summer of 1775, the economy of Virginia was based on slave labor. Lord Dunmore issued a proclamation that any slave or indentured person would be given their freedom if they took up arms with the British against the rebels, the rebels being Americans. Mm -hmm. As a result, 2,000 slaves and indentured persons joined the forces. Later, other British supporters in the colonies issued similar proclamations. The British commander-in-chief at New York, Sir Henry Clinton, issued the Phillipsburg Proclamation when British realized they were losing the war. It stated that any black person to desert the rebel cause would receive full protection, freedom, and land. It is estimated that many thousands of people of African descent joined the British and became British supporters. Hmm. After the war was over and the treaty signed, between April and November of 1783, 114 ships were inspected in New York Harbor. An unknown number of ships left New York and other ports before and after these dates. Over 3,000 black loyalists were enrolled in the Book of Negroes, but... Perhaps as many as 5,000 black people left New York for Nova Scotia, the West Indies, Quebec, England, Germany, and Belgium. Mm, Okay. That's a lot of people on the move. Yep. According to Canadian Encyclopedia, the black loyalists lived in settlements near Shelburne, Birchtown, Digby, Shedabucto in Guysboro, and Halifax. Nearly half went to Shelburne, drawn by the dream of a place where they could live independently on land they owned, free from prejudice. The British promised 100 acres of land for each head of the household and an additional 50 Mm. acres for each family member plus provisions. Mm, So they were paid. It's a substantial amount of land. Yeah. Nova Scotia developed a reputation as a safe haven for black slaves who wanted to escape the U.S. slavers, but it was not without its issues. In 1784, only a year after the arrival of the black loyalists, the province of Nova Scotia was host to its very first race riot. Hmm. 
at the center of it was one former slave turned preacher. From BlackLoyalist.com, David George was a slave to a particularly cruel master. This treatment of him and his family provoked his decision to run away. He left his plantation late at night and walked until morning. After some adventures, he became the slave of a native chief. He was almost brought back by his former master, but managed to escape before the deal was concluded. Hmm. He worked for a man named Mr. Golfin until the beginning of the American War when Mr. Golfin deserted his slaves. So, uh-oh, stuff's happening. So, yeah, you guys are on your mm-hmm. own. Well, it, they gain their freedom that way, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah. Hooray, I guess. George was the son of enslaved African parents in Virginia, and he was among the black loyalists who arrived in Nova Scotia and made their way to Shelburne. He had converted to the Baptist faith and started ministering to others. He was well known for his sermons and was a founding member of the first African-American church in North America Mm. when he was living in South Carolina. He established a church in Birchtown in 1784, preaching to both blacks and whites. Mm, Very cool. From the Canadian Encyclopedia, quote, George's following grew. He became the province's most famous pastor. He preached in black settlements, giving people strength and encouragement. He raised the ire of many who disliked both his message and the color of his skin. They grew violent when George challenged the established racial hierarchy by baptizing white loyalists. Growing racial tensions between Shelburne and Birchtown reached a boiling point. On 26 July 1784, a group of white loyalists demolished George's home. The mob went to tear down the homes of about 20 other free blacks living on George's property, and the rioting lasted for some 10 days, end quote. Holy shit. So, what a, what a crazy time. Can you imagine? It's really, you know, yeah, I kind of can watching what's happening in the world right now. Yeah. Sadly. After the riot, David George, badly beaten with sticks by angry white settlers, pulled up stakes and moved with his family to Sierra Leone. There, he continued preaching, establishing yet another church in Freetown. He saw the people of Sierra Leone through some growing pains and became a venerated person there. According to BlackLoyalist.com, the Nova Scotians became an important ethnic group in Sierra Leone, and their descendants still meet and dominate certain churches in the present day. The Black Loyalist Museum in Birchtown, just outside Shelburne, has just reopened on July 11, 2020, after being temporarily closed to, mm-hmm. due to COVID-19. Yep. Yep. So if you go to blackloyalist.novascotia.ca, you can learn more about the history of the black community there. And even though I lived in the South Shore, I had never been to Birchtown. And until I was researching this episode, I knew little about it. Mm -hmm. And I fully intend to visit on our next trip home. And we will take a break right there. And we're back. What are your thoughts so far, sir? Um, kind of jarring. Right? You know, um... God, what's the expression? Willful, willful ignorance. Like I kind yeah. of part of me is like, oh, I wish I didn't know because <laughs> it yeah. was. Uh, but you, you can't live like that. You have to know. You have to learn about these things, mm-hmm. um, and be appropriately disgusted. It's just fascinating. It, not an ounce of this was knowledge to me. Well, not a lot of it was to me either yeah. before I started researching. Yeah. So don't feel bad. Yeah, I mean, 
I'm, you know, I'm frustrated that it's taken me 46 years to learn this. Yeah. But, um, it takes know. what it takes. It takes what it takes. Yeah. It just wasn't something that seemed to be talked about ever. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I just, uh, I don't, I struggling to understand how I had never asked myself the question right, about racism yep. uh, or slavery in Canada. I mm-hmm. just, like, how have I not thought or asked that? Yeah. Eh, weird. From the Canadian Museum for Human Rights. Quote, because of racism, black settlers were pushed to the margins of society and forced to live on the most inhospitable land. Despite this, they persevered, developing strong, vibrant communities. Africville was one such place, end quote. Hmm. So starting in 1836, Africville began to grow up on the shores of Bedford Basin on the outskirts of Halifax. Although some black settlers had lived on the land for years, the land was first purchased by two black settlers named William Arnold and William Brown in 1848. So it was, they lived on white people's land Mm -hmm. up until 1848 when these two guys Mm -hmm. started buying land. The community was originally referred to as the Campbell Road Settlement. The settlement's unofficial racist name, Africville, did not gain popularity until the early 1900s. According to Africville Genealogy Society's book, The Spirit of Africville, an elderly resident of Africville was quoted as saying, quote, It wasn't Africville out there. None of the people came from Africa. It was part of Richmond, northern Halifax, just the part where the colored folks lived, end quote. Yeah, yeah. So in the um, white Caucasian mind, it was, well, that's... That's Africville. Yeah, it's, yeah. Because, it's a separate thing. Because black people live there. Yeah. yeah. A white English abolitionist and clergyman named Richard Preston set up the Seaview United African Baptist Church in Africville in 1849. And for its first 50 years, Africville was a small community of no more than 50 people. But in the 1900s, it began to grow. From the Canadian Museum for Human Rights, quote, Hundreds of individuals and families lived and built a thriving, close-knit community where there were stores, a school, a post office, and the Seaview United Baptist Church became Africville's spiritual and social center. It's kind of what people do. Yep. While life in Africville was not ideal, it was an affordable place for hard-working residents to buy their own plots of land and build a home on. For many, Africville was the first time any of them owned any kind of real estate. Mm. It was the first real home that many of them had, and they built a community where neighbors cared for one another and lent a helping hand wherever they could. So, kind of like a co-op. Yeah. The small settlement had grown to 400 people when the Halifax explosion leveled a good chunk of the city in December of 1917. Many of the buildings in Africville were damaged by the blast, but major destruction was avoided thanks to the hill north of the settlement that buffered the brunt of the blast. Even though the rest of the settlement made it out relatively unscathed, there were four fatalities. From a CTV news article, included among the dead were, quote, a popular midwife, a barrel maker, and eight-year-old Aldora Andrews. She was home with her parents when the explosion happened. Quote, the effect of the blast and shock apparently knocked her backwards and she hit her head and she died. 
said author and historian Coleman Howe, end quote. That sucks. And for those who don't know about the Halifax explosion, we did an episode on it. I think it's episode six. Yeah, it's a very early episode, so go Mm -hmm. back and uh, take a listen if you haven't. Yeah, so this is a little update to that, because we didn't talk about Africville in that episode. So in the same article, historian Blair Bede talks of the Africville response to the blast. Hmm. Africville residents are somewhat ignored in the fact that they were actually one of the first responders, said Bede. Mm. People who are bleeding go along the railway line, and the first place they got to is Africville. Over the next few days, until the shelters were set up by authorities, Africville residents kindly took people into their homes, treated their wounds, and many of these folks were from the North End, whose own homes had been leveled by the explosion. Mm -hmm. This kindness and care for neighbors who would otherwise shun residents of the settlement is barely mentioned in accounts of the explosion's aftermath. Interesting. Nova Scotia has a great history of taking in. uh, Uh, Well, East Coast, yeah. yeah. Newfoundland did that during 9-11. Yeah, just taking in uh, people in need. (laughs) This this might change your mind about some of that. (laughs) According to a CBC article, when it came to the repair of damaged homes properties and businesses after the explosion, bureaucratic racism was blatant in deciding who got help and how much. Historian and storyteller David Woods wrote, quote, The person who was in charge of the reparations basically sent out a memo indicating to staff that blacks who were applying for relief, their claims should be automatically reduced by 20% or ignored. Oh. And so this was a policy. Uh, Even food relief was denied in some cases. Holy shit, that is so infuriating. Right? My God. Because of the color of somebody's skin. Yeah. The city of Halifax looked at Africville as though it were a blight on its landscape. Starting in 1855, the land began being expropriated, and railroad tracks were allowed to be built right through the middle of the little (laughs) community, effectively dividing it in two. Oh, my God. So if you look at, there's a photo yeah. in particular, I'll, I'll post on darkpoutine.com, but you can see the train running right between the houses. It's crazy. Massive noisy trains would rumble dangerously through the little settlement yeah. all hours of the day and night, shaking walls as they went. The tracks were just playgrounds for the children there. Oh my God. So really dangerous. Yeah. The city put everything its other residents did not want right next to Africville. In 1854, they built Rockhead Prison. There was a city dump nearby that also became a playground, as well as what was referred to as human waste pits and a slaughterhouse. Oh, that just sounds terrible. It is terrible. A human waste pit. Yeah. A pit. Yeah. If you attach pit to anything, Numerous it's not... Numerous pits. It wasn't just one pit. You don't usually hear pit being talked about in a positive context. No. Other industry in the area were an incinerator, a nail plant, a rolling mill, a stone-crushing plant, and a bone meal plant. The air quality was terrible. My God. And, uh, yeah, all of those things would make for a horrible stench. One of those things would. Yeah. The book on Africville in the Writing Canada's Wrong series quotes former Africville resident and longtime activist Eddie Carvery. He said, quote, The hospital would just dump their raw garbage on the dump, bloody body parts, blankets, and everything. We were subject to that. And then they would burn this dump every so often. There would be walls of fire and toxic smoke, and we used to run through that fire to get the metals before they melted because we scavenged off the dump. 
We had to. You had to do that to survive, end quote. Sweet Jesus. My God. Later, tall hydro towers were built, dwarfing many of the homes. Like right next to their homes, these tall hydro powers are built. And those we have come to learn that have a whole other heap of health-related <laughs> issues, including being cause of different forms of cancer, yeah. including brain cancer. Africville was not connected to city water either. City council agreed to build a community well there, but that's as far as it went. There was no proper sewage system there either. Even after years of begging and protesting for connection to these municipal services, the city remained cold to the people's cries, even when health concerns were proved to be present thanks to the insanitary conditions. I'm a little bit pissed right now. Out of necessity, some Africville residents even worked to build the industrial buildings that caused them such strife. They were willing to work, mm -hmm. and contractors knew they came cheap, and they paid the people of Africville much less than their white laborers. Regardless of the city's attempts to drive them out of Africville, residents hung on and did the best they could with what they had. This was home, after all. Mm -hmm. Generations came and went for around 150 years. The Canadian Museum for Human Rights quotes former Africville resident Irvine Carvery as saying, quote, You weren't isolated at any time living in Africville. You always felt at home. The doors were always open. That is one of the most important things that has stayed with me throughout my life. Yeah, you, you do often find that groups of people forced to live in despair become very close. Because right. if you don't have much, what you're going to rely on are others. Yeah, like, each so, other, yeah. So you, it really brings a group of people. It can really bring a group of people together. And, and I'm not surprised it did here. In the same article, another former Africville resident named Laura Howe said, quote, living in Africville, we had a home. It might not have been a mansion, but it was a home. Mm -hmm. You know, And th that's kind of the way I feel about where we are. Yeah. It's like, it's, it ain't much, but it's all we got. Well, and yeah, and again, to when you don't have very much, you really appreciate what you do have. So I can see why that, like, it's, it might not be the best home, but it's my home. In 1945, the city of Halifax came up with a master plan for the renewal of the city. Oh, it was the city's first effort at coordinated planning. The plan recommended the removal of the Africville settlement, oh. providing residents with, quote, a decent minimum standard of living housing elsewhere and residential development of the northern slope of the city. Africville, though, stayed right where it was. No one wanted to move. I bet. In 1957, the city tried again with the same result. Author Sheila Flint wrote in the introduction to her autobiographical book, The Chronicles of Africville's Daughters, quote, I was raised in Africville, lived there with my parents. Every neighbor to me was a family member. My grandmother and grandfather also lived there, along with uncles on both sides of the family, and cousins, sisters, and brothers. I lived in part of Africville called Big Town. There are no pictures of Big Town that I could find. In the summertime, my friends and family would fish, swim, make a bonfire on the shores of Bedford Basin, cook lobsters, crabs, mussels, and pennywinkles. This was what we knew life to be. Until 1966 when the city of Halifax rushed in with their long-standing plan known as urban renewal to get our families out of there. Urban renewal. Doesn't that just sound so nice, Mike? That's how they painted it. Urban renewal. Yeah, so like, that's right, folks. The city kicked them out. Yeah. Yeah, this is like 
the worst form of gentrification. Yeah. Yeah, it's... It's not like, let's come in, make it fancy, and force you out. It's, no, no, we're just going to come in and take you out. Uh, there's one book called Raising Africville that uh, its subtitle is Geographical Racism. Because hmm. hmm. essentially that's what mm-hmm. it is. Yeah. From the Canadian Museum for Human Rights, quote, Instead of providing proper municipal services to the community, the city of Halifax eventually decided to relocate the residents of Africville. The city said it wanted to build industry and infrastructure in the area, because the bottom line. But it also used the language of human rights, claiming that relocation would improve the standard of living for residents. In January 1964, Halifax City Council voted to authorize the relocation of Africville residents. Before this decision was made, there was no meaningful consultation with the residents of Africville to gather their views. In fact, it was later reported over 80% of residents had never had contact with the Halifax Human Rights Advisory Committee, which was the group charged with consulting the community. You know what else would have greatly helped uh, the livability, mm-hmm. the sustainability, the standard of, of life in Africville? Mm improving the standard of living in Africville. Right, you know? exactly. That's <laughs> well, what, yeah. maybe, you know, connect them to the city's water. Yeah. You know, those are other ways to try to improve the standard of living. Right, but that's not what they wanted to do. They wanted no. that land to Clearly. make money and Clearly. do what they wanted to do yep. and make this problem, quote-unquote, con- go considered, away. Considered uh, the black population disposable. Mm-hmm. Over the next few years, Africville was scraped off the side of the hill it was built on by city workers. The residents who could provide deeds for their properties were given what their homes were worth, practically nothing. Those without proper paperwork were given $500. Resistors merely had their land expropriated. Intimidation was not unheard of. Yeah, I bet. From an article on transmopolis.com, folks who were not at home when the bulldozers arrived, lost everything as city workers leveled furnished homes, forcing people into homelessness and destroying generations of keepsakes and heirlooms. An unidentified victim of the Africville Dyspora spoke to a reporter from the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation in 1976 about the destruction of her community. She said, quote, They brought us in more or less like you would herd a bunch of cattle. They used their city dump trucks to load up the children and brought them in and set them in the city. That was a complete disgrace. The city disgraced themselves. They were a perfect disgrace to do that. This is the only place in the world that you would send an old work and dump truck to move children, mothers, and families into a city. We were in a position. There wasn't anything much we could do about it. We were threatened. They put threats on our heads. If you don't move at a certain time, we'll bring out the bulldozers and push your shacks over. Now, if they call them shacks, we call them our castles. It was our homes. I bet you this was a common phrase used. I'm just doing my job. Yeah. I'm just doing my job. I'm sorry if your job uh, involves you harming and hurting other people, you're guilty still. I'm just doing my job. Just doing my job. I was told to do this. Holy shit. Dump trucks full of kids. And people. And there, there's a picture that I saw in the book that I have of a lady's furnishings being loaded into a city garbage truck. Yeah. You know, and they're going to move it with a yeah. garbage truck. Yeah. The last home in Africville was destroyed in 1970. 
even the church was gone. It had been destroyed in 1969 in the dead of night to avoid controversy. So, of course. While everybody's sleeping, we'll just bulldoze the yeah, church. Of course. Jesus. Even though the people had been relocated, things were not much better. After only three years, the city cut off funding for the support systems they had created for former Africville residents. So they put them into like projects like you would see mm -hmm. in the United States. Yep. From the Canadian Museum for Human Rights, quote, Former black residents also faced racism in their new homes. In one case, a white neighbor is reported to have begun a petition opposed to accepting a black family. In another, a man moving from Africville to the neighborhood of Hammond's Plains mm. received a letter threatening to burn his house down if he and his family did not leave. It was signed, from the white people of Hammond's Plains, end quote. Yeah, so that's a really good point. It's, you know, like, uh, sure, they were trying to say, well, we, we're relocating, we're putting you into a, a better a place with a better standard yeah. of living. Yeah. But uh, you're taking them from a community where they're, where they're welcome and they're, love each other. Yep, yeah. They're welcome. They can, they're at least comfortable in their surroundings being other human beings to a place where they're absolutely not welcomed. For years after the destruction of Africville, there were protests and demands for an apology from the city of Halifax. In February, 2010, Halifax Council ratified the Africville Apology, mm. and the Government of Canada announced $250,000 for the Africville Heritage Trust to design a museum and build a replica of the community church. On February 24, 2010, Halifax Mayor Peter Kelly made the Africville Apology, officially apologizing for the eviction as part of a $4.5 million compensation deal. No good, I was going to ask. He said... On behalf of the Halifax Regional Municipality, I apologize to the former Africville residents and their descendants for what they have endured for almost 50 years. Ever since the loss of their community that stood on the shores of Bedford Basin for 150 years, you lost your houses, your church, all places where you gathered with family and friends to mark milestones of your lives. For that, we apologize. We apologize to the community elders, including those who did not live to see this day for the pain and loss of dignity you experienced. We apologize to the generations who followed for the deep wounds you have inherited and the way your lives were disrupted by the disappearance of your community. We apologize for the heartache experienced at the loss of the Seaview United Baptist Church, the spiritual heart of the community, removed in the middle of the night. We acknowledge the tremendous importance the church had both for the congregation and the community as a whole. We realize words cannot undo what has been done, but we are profoundly sorry and apologize to all the former residents and their descendants. For all the distressing consequences, we apologize. Our history cannot be rewritten, but thankfully, the future is a blank page, and starting today, we hold the pen with which we can write a shared tomorrow. It is in that spirit and reconciliation that we ask your forgiveness. What was the compensation? Did you say four million? Four point five million, and I don't know where that went. Mm. Whether it went to a trust or I don't believe it went to individuals because oh, the next okay. bit of this story sort of leads me to think that it, it did didn't. not. Yeah, okay. The replica church was built in two thousand eleven near where it used to stand. It acts as a museum dedicated to the memory of the community, and you can find more information at africvillemuseum.org or visit the museum itself at 5795 Africville Road in Halifax. One resident, 
we mentioned him before. His name was Eddie Carvery. Mm -hmm. And he was 24 years old in 1970 when his home was demolished. Carvery was one of the strongest voices of protest from the community. In a CBC article in 2019, like 49 years after, after the destruction of his community, Carvery was so angry he wanted to, quote, blow up City Hall. Mm -hmm. However, following his mother's advice to keep his demonstration peaceful, he started one of Canada's longest civil rights protests by returning to the land where he was born and lived in a trailer. For a while, he was accompanied by his brother, Victor, and at times his cousin, Nelson. Some called his protest an eyesore because he had uh, his trailers with like signs saying Africville protest painted on the side of them and mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. But others called him a hero. Mm -hmm. He scaled back his protests after the apology, but sometime in 2019, the last of Eddie's trailers were destroyed by the city when he was not there. Oh, for Christ! <laughs> wow. So nine years after the apology, I guess we've kind of forgotten. Yeah, and, and like doing exactly what you had to apologize for. Yep. This put the impoverished, elderly, and infirm man back at square one in his words. Yeah, no kidding. Jesus Christ. A GoFundMe was set up for him this year with funds going toward assisting Eddie with the continuation. In 2010, Eddie spoke to Transmopolis.com and he said, quote, somebody was responsible for this genocide that was created in Canada and no one is talking. Mm -hmm. This whole society, my society is gone. The world I knew was, is, has disappeared. There's no trace of it. My ancestors helped build this city. I have no choice but to stay here and protest what they did to us and the community and the society. We had our own society. They created genocide. And, uh, yeah, like I mentioned, uh, you can men learn more about Eddie in the book The Hermit of Africville, a biography of Eddie Carvery written by John Tatry and published by the Potter's Field Press in 2010. And there's plenty of links if you want to learn more in our show notes. And that is it for this week's case. Yeah, uh, you know, go show the man some support if you can. Or just go learn about this subject. Yeah. Go, there's so much more that you have to learn. This was just a very, very brief introduction. Yeah, yeah. So it's time for voicemails. Ooh. Voicemails, voicemails. You can leave us one at one eight seven seven three two seven five seven eight six or one eight seven seven D A R K P T N. If your call stands out, you might hear it on the show. And we got a few of them this week. I, I guess we've been off for a couple of weeks, so people mm. are calling just to say. Where are you guys? Are I'm you sure, okay? Yeah, Have I'm you sure. died? Yeah, I'm sure that's most of them. We just listened to a voicemail that we didn't like from someone who was an idiot. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. You live in Alberta. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah. 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 No, thank you. Yep. No, thanks. Oh, boy. This one looks like it's from somewhere else. Oh. Hey, guys. Uh, my name is Paige. I'm an anthropology major and a sociology minor at the University of British Columbia. Uh, I'm going to be graduating this upcoming spring, and then I'll be headed off to law school. So you guys' podcast is right up my alley as a forensic anthropology fanatic, pre-law student, and, of course, as a Canadian. Uh, I've been listening to you guys since 2017, and I really appreciate the dedication you guys give, the humor and compassion you show, and I'll be sure to send you some donut money very soon here. Also, I'm anticipating you guys getting Joe Rogan on an episode, so don't let me down. Anyways... Take care, everyone, and be safe out there. Wow. Uh, 
Thank no, you. no one more than us would love to hear Joe Rogan. <laughs> yeah, on well, episode. I mean, he follows me on Instagram, so I must have some clout with him. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get my people. You should mention. You should at him and in one of your. Uh, I'm, now, now that it, I'm thinking about, me, yeah, hmm, I'm gonna hmm. think about something because I have like his contact info and stuff like that. So that would be amazing if, uh, yeah, they give you, us a Joe do. Rogan actually, yeah. Uh, came on our show or we went on so his. if you're listening joe and i know you're not um <laughs> we would love to have you on the show and uh yeah so would Paige. yeah the anthropology major who's going to law school like my my god what a big brain on Paige! jesus Paige! wow <laughs> thanks Paige. all right this next one uh where is this from let's find out hi mike hi scott my name is maggie i've been wanting to leave you this message for close to about a year now I've been listening to your show for uh, quite a while, um, and I'm a huge fan. I just want to let you guys know that the reason it's taken me so long to leave this message is because um, due to a condition which included a brain tumor, I um, have actually been deaf for quite a few years, and when I regained a good portion of my hearing, I w used podcasts as a way to retrain myself how to hear and how to speak. Your podcast, Dark Poutine, is one of my favorites and has been instrumental in helping me regain the ability to hear and to speak. And um, I just wanted to let you guys know I'm a huge fan and I really enjoy your shows, especially the paranormal ones. And uh, yeah, so uh keep up the great work and just know that you're making a difference for entertainment but also health purposes you guys are the best thank you so much holy crap well thanks oh, maggie maggie you're, you're gonna it's getting dusty in here oh yeah yeah something something's in scott's eye something there's a little something in scott's <sighs> eye jesus but, thank uh, you maggie but yeah that's way better than the person from alberta who called <laughs> yeah yeah maggie yeah. Maggie, Maggie, thank so, you. That's you, you are an inspiration. You are. That's wow. That's amazing. Wow. Uh, I I I don't know if I would have the patience to be able to do to retrain myself to do anything if I lost use of something. No. Well, granted, it is a bit concerning that she's using like I should be in no way an example of how to speak. Me neither. You hear me, like <laughs> I stumble around like a. I'm in the dark half the time. <laughs> she, she was going to be saying absolutely a lot. Oh, yeah. Well, there you go. Um, well, oh, okay. Well, thank you so much, Maggie. We really, really yeah. appreciate these words from you. It's, it means a lot when somebody oh God, yeah. calls in with with something like that. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, let's go with this one. This one looks like a quickie. Hey, guys. I just wanted to say... Um, happy Canada Day. This is Janet calling from Trenton, or also known as Quinty West. I just wanted to say um, I'm actually working today, so I'm catching up on old episodes. I love your show, and uh, keep up the good work. So, again, happy Canada Day, and go take a big Canadian shit in your hat. Bye. Thank you so much, Janet, uh, from Trenton. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't know if I can take anything other than a Canadian shit in my hat, because... I, I've tried an American shit. Oh, smells like French fries. It does. <laughs> <laughs> Cholesterol. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. 
Well, you know, it yeah. is what it is. Yeah. Let, let's do one more. One more. We have okay. quite a few, actually, because we've been off for yeah. two weeks. So well, look at this. This looks like it's from Texas. Oh, sweet. Hi, this is Laura from Texas. And I found you guys from the other podcast called My Favorite Murder. And you guys have been awesome. Um, I recently went to New York and I met a whole bunch of people from all over and I met some Canadians and so we were just talking, we were on a pizza tour and uh, it came up, you know, I was asking them what poutine was because I heard about it from you guys but I've never had it myself and they went on and on about how awesome it is and I asked them if they knew about your podcast and they did not. So I turned some Canadians on to your podcast from me in way down in Texas. So I just wanted to say that you guys are awesome and I enjoy listening to you guys every week and go shit in your hat. Man, I, I love that. I love that an American is educating Canadians well, on our podcast. Yeah, it's great. I love it. Thank you so much. Yeah, that's happened a few times. Yeah. And, uh, I really Personal appreciate friends, it. Yeah. 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 Thank you so much. Oh, that was great. <laughs> that's really funny. Um, so yeah, again, if you want to leave us a voicemail and you're not mean, you can leave us one at one 327 5786 or one 877 And if your call stands out in a good way, you might hear it on the show. Yeah. Or us rant about a bad one. Yeah. 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 Because, uh, yeah, you were mean. <laughs> Comes with the territory, sadly, but, yep. uh. And you know who you are. Well, I hope so. Yeah, she's probably listening for it and thinking that we're going to play it. Yeah. But guess what? We're not because you're mean. Yeah. Yeah. Pot calls kettle black. <laughs> it was, it, how apt. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very true. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Anyway, uh, yeah. I don't know if that's a racist term, pot calls kettle black. Maybe we should I, I, never use that again. I don't think it is because I think it's about. Um, yeah, I remember the old. Black. Black and from the heat and from the temperature. Well, not they were actually made black. Yeah. But. So I don't think, I don't think yeah, it's. I, I'm going to look uh, it up later yeah. and maybe we'll talk about it next week. Yeah. <laughs> you never know these days. I've learned so many things that I should not be saying. Oh my God. Yes. No can do. Racist term. What? It is a racist term. Do you know why? No. Because it was coined by people who were. Uh, referring to Chinese settlers. Uh, and when they would refuse to do something, they would say, no can do. So broken English. Bro yep. Holy shit. So I won't be saying that anymore. Wow. Mm -hmm. My God. Okay. Good to know. <laughs> it's crazy how many things that have like a racist. Yeah. Uh, Connotation. Or yeah. racist Origin. origins. Yeah. yeah. getting tiring <laughs> <laughs> it's on to patreon shout outs and uh this week we have some uh, scott's gonna do some really super interesting stuff yeah well i mean it's what i do yeah it's time for patreon shout outs let's uh let's see who who loves us this week i'm sure you all love us but some people love us with money <laughs> <laughs> all right so our first patron is nicola w and I don't know where Nicola's from. So where is N she? Nicola is from uh, Kampala. 
Kampala. Yeah, in Uganda. It's in oh, U- it's, the ca- wow. it's actually the capital of Uganda. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And what does she do there? Oh, well, uh, she um, smelts um, metals. She smelts metals. Metal smelter. Well, that's nice. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not sure exactly what smelting is, mm-hmm. so I can't. But she probably makes things like horseshoes. Hmm. And um, there you go. Um, pencils. Oh, sure. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that there's no smelting needed in pencils, other than the little metal piece that's on the top. Well, that's exactly what I was referring to. Oh, okay, for yeah, exactly. And so, it's a big time smelter loves it. Loves it. Great benefits to it. There you go. Uh, next, we have Stephanie Mead, and she is from High Level Alberta. And what does Stephanie do in High Level, Scott? She watches the levels. She watches. She the watches levels. the levels uh, and makes sure that they at all times are high. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So so if the levels start to get low in high level. Yeah. If the levels start to get lo- go low, she ha- she like there's a red button on her desk. Yeah. That she has. She just like pounds it and it sends alarms and, and alerts people and really like just a barrage of people go out and and work towards getting the level back high again. Well, that's great. Yeah, I agree. Next, we have Kelly Hubick, and she is from Hamilton, Ontario. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does Kelly do in Hamilton? Oh, she's she's an ice cream truck operator. Oh, I I did the ice cream bike. So I did. You? I did. That was my very first wow. job. I learned to smoke there. Oh well, that's, that's where I learned to smoke cigarettes. Well, what what a great job! I don't smoke cigarettes anymore. But, no, yeah. no, but yes, that's what she does. She she uh, sells ice cream. Um, she's great at it. Makes a couple hundred grand a year from it. You wouldn't oh, wow. think that it's that lucrative a trade, but it is. Well, there you go. It is. Yeah, yeah. And uh, our next patron uh, is Gwen Hogan Taylor, and she is from my old stomping grounds, oh. North Vancouver. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. What does she do in North Van? Oh, what she does is uh, she is a, um, in North Van. Yeah. It's a fairly affluent area. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty, pretty nice place. Yeah, yeah. it's a fairly, especially if you're up in the British properties. But yeah. It's, That's it, West Van. Uh, well, it's still, it's north of where we are currently. Right. So that's, that's North Van to okay. me. Okay. Uh, and so what she does there is she's a financial advisor. Mm-hmm. For the wealthy. Yep. Um, but what her finance, like she gives poor financial advice. Oh, she gives bad finance. So yeah, if you want to lose money. Yes, intentionally. Go see. Yes. Because some, some, some people are just like. Oh, I'm hoping I'm she's just, not an actual financial advisor. Oh my God. Could you imagine? <laughs> so if you are, we're just making fun. Yes. And it, Gwen actually is a great financial advisor. Yes. If she really is that. Yes. That is what, yeah, she's fantastic at it. God. We're just making a joke. What if that were, oh my God. Yeah, we better be careful what we say. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. that's an actual possible So thing. smelting. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's not the case. Uh <laughs> Next, from yeah, Langley, next, next, yeah. Na- Langley, British oh, Langley. Columbia, we have Sherry Batalana. Sherry Batalana. Yeah, yeah, what does she do? Not a financial advisor. Not? Not. Okay. A, that's one thing I know okay. for sure. What does she do there? In, in Langley, what she does is she's a horse main uh, attendee, a care, carer. Oh, so she combs their hair. Yes. Oh, well, there you go. Yes. So, so essentially, you mean, some would say like a, a horse stylist. Right. 
you know, but yeah, she, she specializes in horse mane. She's not a real estate agent who sells poor real estate. No, <laughs> no, no, not a terrible nurse. No, 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 not none of the so horse, uh, horse, uh, stylist. And well, that's great. great. She's great. You may have seen her some of her work. No, well, you've seen a horse in your life. Oh, she does all the horses. Well, a good chunk of them in this hood, in this okay. this area. There's so, lots of horses in yeah, Surrey. Her specialty is making a horse look like a lion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's neat. It is great. Next, we have Jenny G, and I don't know where Jenny's from. Oh, Porto Novo. Oh, where's that? Uh, Benin. Benin. Ben- Benin. Benin. Yeah, okay. Benin. What does she do there? Uh, in Porto Novo? Yeah. Oh, what she does is she's a Brazilian jiu-jitsu coach. Oh, nice. Yeah. Is she, so she's a black belt? Uh, no. No. She she, she, she doesn't white. have any belts. She's, she's a white belt. She like, just coaches because she thinks mo- she's Motivational coach. Ah. Well, you've got this. Arm bar. Arm bar. <laughs> That's neat. Arm bar. Rear naked choke. I believe in you. I believe in your rear naked choke abilities. You can do this. You've got it. More. Yeah. Like that. That's great. Yeah. Well, thanks. (laughs) Thanks, Jenny. Yeah. Next we have Julia or Jules Wicks. And she is from Great Britain. Oh. Oh, There you go. Stuntney. Yeah. Stuntney. Stuntney. Uh, so I bet you she's a stunt person. Specifically a knee. Oh, a she, does knee she does stunts. knee stunts. She does knee stunts specifically, yeah. yeah. You've heard of hand models and stuff. It's the same thing in the stunt world. She's a knee. Because yeah, like, when you tumble, mm-hmm. there's lots of close-ups on the knee because you want to see the impact and stuff. And so that's where she fits in. Wow. Yeah. That's great. It really is. I agree. So from Houston, Texas, we have a new prime minister. Holy crackers. Houston, Texas, Texas. Uh, her name is Laura Mandura from oh, Houston. Well, and what, what does Laura do in Houston? In Houston, she is an oil rigger. Well, there's probably lots of well, oil that's why. rigs around. Yeah, so. that's why. That's why. Go. She builds the rigs herself. She's burly. She, she, is she well, burly? She's burly. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, have you ever seen an oil ring? Uh, yeah. That shit ain't small. Apparently, she wants to arm wrestle me because she wants to rip off my arm. So, wow. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's understandable. Yeah. That's understandable. But so, yeah, she, like, the earlier discussed metal smelting, she uses some of that said smelted metal mm-hmm. and builds the oil rigs. That's great. It is. It is. You see how the, the our, our listeners are supporting each other. It's really beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Laura. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Laura. Lisa Longmire is from Beaumont, Alberta. Oh, is she now? Yes, she is. Oh, what what does she do there? In Beaumont? Yep. Alberta. Um, she's a uh, underlawn maintenance specialist. Oh. Yeah. So, you know how, like, lawns will have grass? Yep. Well, what about underneath the grass, Mike? What about underneath dirt. the lawn? Yeah. In yeah. the dirt. You can't have a successful lawn mm-hmm. without successful dirt, Mike. Is what no, they that's say. True. That's, that's what true. they say in you the are industry. One hundred percent correct. That's what they say in the industry. So her job, like she'll come to your house, elevate your lawn, like uses like it's kind of like a jack, mm-hmm. and lift the lawn up in the air, and then she'll spend you know weeks at some depending on the size of the lawn, making sure the dirt is up to snuff, and then mm-hmm. she'll lower slowly, lower down with the jacks the lawn and put it back in place and. That lawn's going to do great. There you go. Moving forward. Yeah. That's awesome. It really is. I agree. Well, thank you, Lisa. Yeah. 
Uh, next, we have Tanya or Tanya Anderson, and she's from Septiel, Quebec. Oh, Septiel. Okay. What sure. does she do in Seven Isles? In Seven Isles. What she does? Septiel, Seven oh, Isles. Oh, well yeah. done, Mike. Well we done. talked about that in the show. Did, do, yeah. I, yeah I, in I, one you don't remember. I don't it's remember. It's fine. I don't remember yesterday. Yeah. Uh, uh, it was the legends with the canoe oh yeah. oh yes that one the flying canoe that was yeah. fantastic uh what she does there is um a transcendental meditationist oh mm-hmm. so does she teach it or does she just meditate? she just does it and people Someone pay her pay. oh wow yeah they, she pay, she live streams it she's moving the word world forward that she's way. moving the world forward she live streams it and it's just nothing nothing you know um risque about it it just people uh, are inspired by the power of her transcendental meditation. Mm-hmm. Uh, they And so they just, they give her money. They send her money for the live streams. And we get to just enjoy watching somebody meditate instead of meditating ourselves. It's kind of a vicarious meditation. So, right. So I don't have to meditate. I'm going to pay somebody else to meditate for me is essentially what it is. So... Uh, that's really cool. It's fantastic, and, and it takes the meditation off my plate. There you go. Yeah, oh, I like meditating. I'm so sure. thank you, Tanya. Next, we have from Las Vegas, Nevada, mm. Casey Jones, and I know what Casey Jones does for a living. Oh, what does Casey Jones do? Uh, according to the Grateful Dead song, okay, Casey Jones is driving that train high on cocaine. Whoa! Yeah, that's a career, huh? Casey Jones, you better watch your speed. Trouble ahead, trouble behind. And you know that notion just crossed my mind. Casey Jones. Wow. I did not know that that a career was available. Yeah. In in that. Driving that train high on cocaine. Yeah. To me, it sounds like a safety concern. Yeah. But I don't know. I mean, maybe if that was in the... uh, uh, job requirements. And I'm hoping Casey Jones has a sense of humor about her name. because, yeah, yeah. Uh, And is it also an actual train operator? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's like we could just keep digging the holes. <laughs> we're, we're a big part of unemployment <laughs> in the world. Correct. Thank you so much, Casey. Yeah, that's awesome. We really appreciate it. And we hope, we hope that you don't mind me saying that. Um, and next we have Tanya Campbell. Oh, and I don't know where she's from. Oh, Tehran. Oh, she's from Tehran. Yeah, Tehran. Oh, interesting. Yeah. What does she do there? Uh, what she does there is she is a, uh, oh my God, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, propagandist. Oh. Yeah. She, yeah. She, she puts what up. What kind of propaganda though? Well, she puts up like pro-Iran um, uh, posters. Okay. On buildings and the streets and stuff like that. Oh, good just for her. To, you know, uh, look. It's Tanya a ju- Campbell, definitely, when I hear that name, I you would think, think of Tehran. someone yeah. from Tehran yeah. who puts up posters. Yeah, you and me both. Yeah. Yeah, you and me both. Uh, you know, I wouldn't say she's proud of what she does, but she's also not because she's, she's working. She's feeding the family. Hmm. So, you know. There you go. Yeah. Um, from Stuyak, Nova Scotia, oh. one of one of my favorite places. Yep. Uh, Mike Beckett. And what does Mike do in Stuyak? I knew a construction company in Stuyak. Well, uh, let me tell you uh, what he does. Uh, um, a stew maker. Just uh, all, Oh, yeah. he, he's a, a cook. Well, I wouldn't go that far. 
Makes it's stew. only stew. It's only stew. Did I ever tell you the story about my friend Skip who lied to get a job in a <laughs> lumber camp? No. And so he lied and said he was a good cook. So yeah. he got a job in a lumber camp as the cook. Oh my God. And the first night he realized, holy crap, I don't know how to cook. <laughs> so you know what Skip made? Bologna stew. Oh my He just shit. cut up bologna and potatoes and vegetables and made bologna stew. I hope it was at least good. No. Apparently no. not. <laughs> that job didn't last long. No kidding. <laughs> wow, they might know each other. There you go. Thanks, Mike. Uh, Heather Brown. She, my cousin's name is Heather Brown, but oh, this isn't her. And she is from Tilgman in Maryland. Okay. Well, aren't we all at some point? Okay. What does she do there? Uh, she's a watchmaker. Oh, she makes watches. She makes watches. Yeah. Oh, every single detail. Oh, mine's all charged up. I should put it back you on. You should. Every single detail, every single component by hand. Nice. You, you, know, you know how long it takes her to make a make a watch? Well, how long? Seven years. So she's made four. <laughs> she's made four watches. <laughs> uh, she should really jack up her price. Yeah. This is only like 500 a watch. Oh, that's bad. So when you break that down per hour. Yeah, she's making pennies. That's terrible. If it's that. terrible. But, you know, uh, they're great fucking watches. Well worth it if you can be patient. Oh, I guess so. Well, thanks, Heather. I'm looking forward to buying one of your watches. Yeah. I'll put it on my other wrist, yeah. the one opposite my Apple Watch. Well, who knows how many wrists you'll have in seven years. I, probably the same, too. Okay. I'm hoping. Yeah, unless more. there's a bad car accident. Oh, they, you may... They, you, Seven years from now, who knows what's possible? Extra, extra arms. True. Next we have Holly Crouchy, and she is from, actually, in the neighborhood that I used to live in, in Maple Ridge, British Columbia. Hmm, it's a good thing you lived everywhere. I did. <laughs> I, let's just say I was really nomadic yeah. in my 20s and 30s. Yeah, same. I've got a lot, yeah, a lot of former residents. a lot of addresses. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I've lived all over this yeah. fine British Columbia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But, uh, so what does Holly do out there in Maple Ridge? Oh, in Maple Ridge, she's a tour guide. Oh. Yeah, in Maple I Ridge. Is she touring, like, uh, Golden Ears Park and stuff like that? No, or? no, oh. it's just the city. Oh, like, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's... Um, like well, Haney. She yeah. just tours of Haney. Yeah, she doesn't the Haney Mall. I didn't say she ran a successful business. <laughs> I'm just saying that. Again, we're I, hoping that you're actually not a real tour operator. I'm just saying that uh, this is what she does. Well, there you go. Yeah. Well, thanks, Holly. Yeah, thank you, Holly. And I hope business picks up. Next, we have Danielle Nielsen. Oh, cool. And I don't know where she's from. Oh, she's from Hamilton, but not where you'd think. Jamaica. Bermuda. Bermuda. Oh, I knew it was one of those yeah. Caribbean yeah, kind of places. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bermuda. My yeah. mom and dad went to Bermuda once. Really? And they rented uh, mopeds. Yep. And my mom fell off the well, moped shit. and burned her leg. This is a terrible story, <laughs> right? This is not. This is not an uplifting. Yeah, tale. mom's not big on traveling because no. dad always makes her do things that she doesn't really. Yeah, let's know, go want. volcano walking. Yeah, pretty much. Mm -hmm. And then she fell in the volcano. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, not good. Yeah. Um, so what does Danielle Nielsen do in Hamilton, Bermuda? Oh, palm tree. Planter. I was going to say she probably makes Bermuda shorts, but she's no, a palm no. tree planter. She's thinking about making the transition. Oh, okay. okay. She's thinking about it because yeah. um, you, how many palm trees can you plant? Right. You know what I mean? But is you, you, you reach a limit, but, but Bermuda shorts, 
limitless. Fair enough. Limitless options. Aaron Prince is from Scottsdale, Arizona. Of course he is. I don't know what he does there. Uh, uh, oh, he's a prince. Oh, he's a prince. Well, there you go. He's royalty. Yeah, they named him after his position. Oh, there you go. Yeah. And so, yeah, he's a prince in uh, uh, Alberta. He's an Albertan prince. Very. Yeah, they have them now. Okay. Yeah, they have them now, you know, because oil, the oil fields. and He's from Arizona, though. That's what I said. Okay. Yeah, that's what I didn't. Yeah. So Arizona prince. Yeah, there's an A involved. I mean, cut me some slack. Sure. Uh, yeah, that's where, yeah, he's a prince. He's a prince of Arizona, as they like to say. You know, you mean, you've heard of the prince, fresh prince of Bel Air. He's like the French, fresh, French prince of He's a Arizona. French prince of Arizona. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, he's the, you should watch his sitcom. It's hilarious. Uh, I think I'll check it out. You really should. I recommend it. Next from Edson, Alberta, we have Batman's butler, Alfred. <laughs> Oh, just Alfred. Well, we know the job. Yeah, we know, we the, know job. the job. He's, he's Batman's butler. So, but I would think that his Batman's butler would live in Gotham City yeah. with Batman. Because well, what? Uh, what apparently, he's telecommuting now. Oh, oh, well, that makes sense. You answer the door because everything is like he's got. A, I'm sure Batman's got a goddamn he's got smart home. One of those ring doorbells. He's got. He's got. Know. Everything's got to be a smart home, and so like in. Alpha yeah, because Bruce Wayne's like, get the dough. Oh, my God. Oh, I mean, Batman has yeah, the yeah. dough. Jeez, Sorry, Mike. Whoops. Whoops. Oh, my God. Oh, I just blew, I blew up his spot. You did. It's like, this is this episode is not going to end well for Batman. I'm a terrible person. Yeah. 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 Oh, well. Yeah. Big news, folks. You heard it here first. Yeah. Batman is Bruce Wayne. Yeah, at least, at least Alfred's made it far. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, he's doing stuff from Alberta now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Are you being told to stand up? I don't know what. Which, by the way, like, that is my greatest athletic accomplishment I realized in the last 10 years is when my watch congratulates me for standing up. <laughs> right. <laughs> At 10 to those are on my, the hour, yeah. the Apple Watch will tell you to stand up and move around. Those are my, And then when I do, it's like... Awesome job, it Scott. Says, you did it. Yeah, like that is my like that is my greatest. I realized that that's my greatest athletic accomplishment nice. uh, in the last ten years or so. Good uh, job standing up, Scott. Woohoo! <laughs> Next we have uh, Sarah Mitchell, and she is from Williamsville, New York. Yes, yeah, she is. Yeah. What does she do there? She uh, is a also a tour guide, but in New York, that's a sustainable living. Oh boy! Yeah, because you know, people go to New York. People want to be in New York. They get you know. Uh, if you're like, hey, show me the um, Empire State State Building. I was gonna say Empire Stadium, but that was here. Uh, Empire State Building. Uh, she'll be like, sure, hop in my Toyota Celica. Yep, and I'll take you there. Oh, there you go. Yeah, and she'll she drives there, and then she'll be like, any anything else you want to see? And people will be like, can you show me? Um, um, other New York cool things. And she'd be like, yep, let me start the Salika back up. And then they just, it's great. It's great. It's a very personalized tour. Well, there you go. Yeah, yeah it's great. It's great. So we uh, have, let me see. All right. And last, as far as patrons go, mm -hmm. from Vancouver, BC, oh. we have Veronica Bondarud. Yeah, good old Veronica. What does she I do? Say. What does she do in Vancouver? Oh, she's a uh, she, Veronica. I'm trying to recall Veronica. Veronica. Oh yeah, yeah. She she actually owns Pacific Center. Wow, it's a very big affluent mall in downtown Vancouver. She wow. owns it. Yeah, 
Yeah, she Aren't owns they? it. Yeah, wow. Yeah. They're remodeling some of that. Oh, sure they are. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Why not? And know? that's where uh, the kidnapper of Jimmy Pattison's daughter hid. That is true. Wow. So again, a callback to one of our everything. Episodes. Everything. Everything now relates back to a dark boutique episode, <laughs> right? Because there's been 132 of them. A- absolutely. But so yeah, she she owns. Uh, so I mean, re- realistically, she doesn't have to do much now. She has a team of people. You know, marketing. How did she make her money? How did she make her money? Yeah. Oh, uh, <laughs> he says while he thinks <laughs> she uh, she uh, was uh, she ran a, a fishing boat. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's, yeah. That can be good money. It was. It was. Yeah, she, she invested had, wisely. She invested. Yeah, she did. There she you go. Did, yeah. Well, she thank got, you. She Veronica. got in. She got in uh, when the getting was good, as they like to say. And she got out while the getting was good. No, she still owns it. Oh, oh no. The fishing industry. Yeah, yeah. She got in and made her, made her wealth. <laughs> bought them all. There you go. Uh, next, we have, as far as our PayPal donut money donators, we have Shirley Leong. And I don't know where Shirley's from. Uh, Shirley is from, um, Shirley is from Rai, I always struggle pronouncing it, Rida? Okay. Riyadh? Mm-hmm. Riyadh. It's in Saudi Arabia. Oh, Riyadh. That's what I said. It's Riyadh. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's the capital. Well, but that's, that might be how you pronounce it. Mm-hmm. Carol lived in Dahran. Did she really? Yes, she did. Wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah, dude, I remember she, I knew she lived in Saudi Arabia. I just mm-hmm. wasn't sure where, but uh, yeah, this is, he's from. It's Riyadh. This Riyadh, exactly. Yeah. I was a test, Mike. You passed okay. it. I'm very, very impressed. And what does Shirley Leong do in Riyadh? Ah, uh, she uh, rakes sand. But there's a lot of it to that's, rake. That's why. That's why. Yeah. And you want it looking good. Yep. You never know if there might be a long jump competition breakout. Yeah. And, uh. You need some. You need some finely raked sand for to for long jumping, and so yeah, it's a good trade there. There you go. It's a good trade. So it's got our, a variety of rakes and everything. So you know, awesome. Yeah. Our friend Harry Sims sent us a donation. He says, "Hi guys, I'm working a double on Jul- the fourth of July, so I thought I would share the wealth. Oh. I had an epiphany this morning as I was listening to your amazing latest episode, Dark Poutine, Dark Poutine Sam Squanch Hunt." <laughs> With Mike and Scott, take a steamy in your beanie. Oh, my God. Yeah, so he wants us to take a steamy in our beanie. Oh, that's a good one. Thank you, Harry. He is our good friend from Roseville, California, and he is a uh, a worker in the medical. Yeah, healthcare healthcare. worker, uh, and just an all-around solid dude, seriously. Yeah, we love you, Harry. Thank you so much for sharing the wealth, and we, uh, Scott, is taking a steamy in his beanie right now, and I have to watch, which is horrible. I don't like talking a lot. Uh, don't make eye contact. It's uh, terrible. Well, okay, that was everything it was cracked up to be. Oh, yeah, the that stench. Was great. That was great. Anyway, uh, yeah, so that is great. Uh, <laughs> thanks to all our patrons and donut money donut donors, past and present, for your help to keep us doing what we do. If you want to su- show your support of Dark Poutine, you su- can subscribe at darkpoutine.com slash uh, patreon.com slash darkpoutine. Or for a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal at our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already, it would mean a lot to us if you subscribe to the show in your podcast app. You can easily find us on iTunes, Podcast, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, or wherever you get your on-demand audio. Check out our website, darkpoutine.com, for show notes and other cool stuff. Give us a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Just search for Dark Poutine. Most importantly... Thank you for listening and tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. And until next week, 
don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Yes, please. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye. <laughs> that was a very squelchy bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>